My name is Dee Artemkill, and I'm the Government Affairs Associate at the Cato Institute. And I have a few quick announcements to make before we start our event today. This is the sixth edition of the Cato Handbook on Policy. It has 69 chapters on 69 policy areas from, of course, healthcare to tax policy to international relations uh, to the nanny states and, and everything in between. And, of course, there are uh, several chapters in here authored by our uh, Cato scholar, Mike Tanner. Um, the book is available for purchase on our website, www.cato.org, or you may download all chapters, again, uh, free of charge, at www.cato.org. Also, all of our events are uh, video, video archived on our, on our website as well. By the way, if you are a Hill staffer, please, um, and you don't have a copy of this or would like an extra copy, they're available free of charge to Hill staff, so uh, please feel free to see me afterwards, and I will make sure that you get uh, as many copies as you need. Um, also, Cato has uh, recently launched a blog. It's called Cato at Liberty, and the address is www.cato-at-liberty.org. Uh, we encourage you to definitely uh, check it out. Um, lastly, uh, we have an event, or series of four events actually, called Healthcare University, May 30th, 31st, June 1st, and 2nd. They'll all be in Rayburn B338, and uh, they'll focus on different uh, basic market-based um, principles of healthcare from the basic economics to how not to reform health care, liberalizing the private health care sector, and reforming government health insurance programs. So we encourage you to attend. You, uh, you can register for them at our website, uh, again, cato.org. Uh, and you can either feel free to, you know, we'd love for you to come to all four of them, but we understand if you can't, uh, you may register for them each individually as well. Well, our first speaker today is uh, Ron Pollack. He's the founding executive director of Families USA, National Organization for Healthcare Consumers and Consumers. In 1997 through 1998, Pollack was appointed the sole consumer organizational representative on the Presidential Advisory Commission on Consumer Protection and Quality in the Healthcare Industry. In that capacity, Pollack helped prepare the Patients' Bill of Rights that has passed in many state legislators and that is also pending in the Congress. Mr. Pollack is a frequent guest on a variety of television and radio programs, and he is often quoted in several leading newspapers. Mike Tanner is Cato's Director of Health and Welfare Studies. Mike heads research on new market-based approaches to health, welfare, and social security. He is the author and co-author of several books, most recently including uh, Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Health Care, and How to Free It. Here it is. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, Tim Murphy could not uh, make it today. However, uh, Dr. Nichols uh, has uh, very graciously stepped in. Uh, Len Nichols, a highly respected healthcare economist, directs the health policy program at the New America Foundation, which aims to expand health insurance coverage to all Americans while reining in costs and improving the efficiency of the overall healthcare system. Before joining New America, Dr. Nichols was the vice president of the Center for Studying Health uh, System Change, a principal research associate at the Urban Institute and a senior advisor for health policy at the Office of Management and Budget 
during the Clinton reform efforts of 1993 to 1994. He has testified frequently before Congress and state legislators and has published widely in a variety of health-related journals. And last but not least, Arnold Kling is an independent scholar who writes about a variety of economic issues. Kling received his PhD in economics from MIT in 1980. He was an economist on the staff of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System from 1980 to 86 and served as a senior economist at Freddie Mac from 1986 to 1994. Kling is, several, uh, is the author of several books, most recently, Crisis of Abundance, here, uh, Rethinking How We Pay for Healthcare, published by the Cato Institute. He also co-edits EconLog, a weblog devoted to economic issues, and now, without, and without, without further delay, please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Mr. Pollock. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here, and uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for inviting me. I'm not a frequent guest uh, of the Cato Institute, but uh, I'm delighted to be here uh, nonetheless. I, I do have to, while I express my thanks, I also need to express my apologies uh, because uh, I need to uh, leave the forum shortly after my presentation for another forum on the other side of the hill. Um, but uh, I'm delighted to have a chance to express my views to you uh, today about the uh, Massachusetts Health Plan. First is background. I think it makes sense for us uh, to be focusing on uh, what states are doing uh, because obviously there's not much progress, if progress at all, uh, here in Washington with respect uh, to the uninsured uh, as Probably all of you know there are 45.8 million people in the, in the United States who are uninsured. And that's such a huge number. People have a difficulty trying to sort of wrap their arms around that number. Uh, and the way I try to describe it is 45.8 million is larger than the aggregate, and uh, I underscore the word aggregate, population of 24 states plus the District of Columbia. Now, obviously, I'm talking about the least populous states in the United States, but it's still rather extraordinary that the number of people who are uninsured, according to the Census Bureau, is approximately equivalent to the overall population in almost half the states in the United States. And, of course, the situation has gotten worse. Uh, since 2000, the number of people who are uninsured has grown by 7 million people, uh, and it's likely to continue to grow unless we undertake some effective action uh, to deal with it. Now, since we've seen uh, essentially no action at the federal level in the last bunch of years, and indeed the only debates that we're having are debates that actually may make the situation worse. We saw significant cutbacks in the Medicaid program as part of the budget legislation, and that is going to cause significant numbers of people, the most vulnerable among us, uh, to potentially be priced out of health care because they're going to have to pay more in out-of-pocket costs, and they will be getting uh, fewer benefits. Uh, and some of the other proposals that we're debating here would further fragment the insurance market to the detriment of those people 
who need health care the most. So it's not surprising that there are a number of states that are contemplating taking some action on this, what I believe, our number one problem in America's health care system. Massachusetts is obvious, but we've seen the uh, state of Maine has adopted legislation, the so-called Durago Health Plan, which was adopted a few years ago, which, if it is implemented properly, could cover virtually everybody in the state of Maine who is uninsured. Uh, and in Illinois, uh, only a few months ago, the state adopted the so-called all-kids proposal, which is designed to expand coverage to every child in the state of Illinois. There are today 253,000 children in that state uh, that are uninsured. Now, talking about the Massachusetts plan, when I got asked, uh, as, as we were at Families USA a number of times by the media, what was our reaction to the Massachusetts proposal, I responded with what might constitute a classic oxymoron. Uh, I said that uh, uh, I am cautiously enthusiastic about the uh, Massachusetts proposal. I don't know how anyone can be cautiously enthusiastic, but that was our reaction. And so I want to express to you both sides of this equation, why we're enthusiastic and why we have some caution about uh, the Massachusetts plan. I would just say, uh, as a brief summary to my comments, I'm enthusiastic for two reasons. One is that Massachusetts' proposal has the potential for significantly expanding health coverage to people in the state who are uninsured. And I am also enthusiastic because I think in terms of process, this was a major breakthrough which I think a lot of us can learn from here in Washington and in states across the country. I am cautious because some of the key details that will determine whether the Massachusetts proposal really works and whether it truly does meet its goal of covering every person in the state is going to significantly depend on some of the details that have not yet been worked out uh, and that uh, remain in front of us, and I'll talk about those in a moment. So let me uh, first talk about the uh, enthusiasm part of the equation. And first let me talk uh, in terms of that enthusiasm, why I'm enthusiastic from a process standpoint. I think those of us who have studied America's health care system and have been involved in different forms of uh, health care reform debates, I think one of the things that we found has been common to each of these debates and has been common to each of the stakeholders that participated in those debates, is that every group, whether they are conservative or liberal, whether they are Republican or whether they are Democrat, whether they're a special interest group or a public interest group, all of them have come into the debate with their top priority proposal. And when it appeared, as it almost inevitably has, that their top priority proposal would not be adopted in the legislative process. Each walked away from the table or opposed what was left on the table. And another way of saying that is everybody's second favorite choice was the status quo. And so why is it surprising 
that we as a nation have been left with the status quo mm -hmm. with almost each iteration of health reform debate. I don't believe that we as a nation, particularly with a very fractious Congress, with a very divided public, that we are going to achieve any significant breakthrough with respect to the uninsured unless we find some way to make a virtue out of a second favorite choice. And that means we're going to have to mix and match some ideas that curry favor on the liberal and democratic side of the debate and some on the more conservative and Republican side of the debate. And that's precisely what happened in Massachusetts. Now, Massachusetts is known as that bluer of blue states, um, but Massachusetts still had a Republican governor who certainly did not want to lose favor with uh, uh, his Republican constituency, especially as a potential candidate for president. And yet the governor came together with a very Democratic state legislature, and legislation was adopted almost on a unanimous basis. And I think in terms of process, there is a lot to be learned uh, from what Massachusetts has done. Now, with respect to substance, I think that uh, what Massachusetts has done is it has taken a look at different portions of the uninsured population and has tried to come up with a mix-and-match approach that doesn't just look at public programs or private sector initiatives, but tries to do a combination of those things. We saw as part of the Massachusetts proposal modest expansion of the Mass Health Program, uh, which is the Medicaid program uh, in Massachusetts. It covers more children. It restores a series of benefits that had been reduced uh, a few years ago. So it did do something on the public program side, rather modestly, I might add, but still did something fairly uh, important. Then the legislation creates a so-called Commonwealth Health Insurance Connector. And this is designed to make it easier for small businesses, businesses with fewer than 50 workers, to obtain health insurance, and for those people who are trying to purchase coverage in the individual market, <clears throat> to provide coverage that would be more affordable using economies of scale in such a way that uh, uh, coverage would be easier to obtain from, uh, by small businesses and by individuals. We see the state providing subsidies for people who are low income. For those below the poverty level, they will get everything essentially subsidized, their premiums and the like. Uh, for those between 100 and 300 percent of the poverty level, uh, they are going to get some subsidies as well. I'm going to return to that in a moment. Just, uh, just for you to uh, note, 300 percent of poverty uh, for a family of three is uh, a little under $50,000, $49,800 for a family of four it's $60,000. And so there will be some subsidies made available for people who can't afford health coverage so it's more, uh, they have a better chance of affording coverage. Then it does something that's uh, uh, very controversial. Indeed, uh, the governor vetoed this and this is being overridden. Uh, it requires employer responsibility. Now, it's a rather modest employer responsibility provision. It's not uh, a major payer play proposal that 
has an employer pay roughly the equivalent of what they otherwise would pay if they did provide coverage. It's a modest sum of approximately $295 per worker if the employer does not provide uh, health coverage. And this applies to those employers who have 11 or more workers in their firm. And lastly, there is a rather controversial provision as well, a so-called individual mandate. And individual mandate uh, is not something many uh, of my colleagues are thrilled about, um, but it is paired with uh, subsidies for those people who can't afford coverage. And so individuals who have coverage available to them, and if it is affordable, they are required to purchase it at the cost of losing um, initially uh, their personal exemption uh, and later on about half the cost of what insurance would cost to them. Now, there are, as I said, some key outstanding issues, and this is what makes me cautious about this proposal. Uh, and these details are going to be worked out in the months ahead, and how they get worked out are going to be critically important in determining whether this proposal is truly going to be effective. One issue that has to be worked out is what will be the level of the subsidies for people between 100 and 300 percent of the poverty level? <clears throat> this group of people clearly cannot afford health coverage on their own, and unless the subsidies are significant enough, uh, it's not going to be realistic to expect that they're going to be able to afford coverage and that they should be mandated to purchase that coverage. Secondly, the individual mandate says that this individual mandate only applies to those people who can afford to purchase coverage. But what's the standard for affordability? That standard has not yet been established, and that's going to be critically important to determine whether this individual mandate makes sense. And lastly, uh, this uh, Commonwealth connector is uh, yet to be determined whether the connector is going to be able to come up with policies that are adequate and yet are affordable. That is a major challenge uh, that lies before the state as it develops uh, the further details about this proposal. I, I am left, however, with a sense of optimism about this, and that is because I believe that the policymakers in the state of Massachusetts are truly committed to expanding coverage for everybody, and as these problems crop up, as they undoubtedly will, I believe that there are uh, key members who are leading the drive in the legislature uh, who are prepared to make modifications in this proposal to make sure that it truly works. Let me just answer two questions uh, before I sit down, because undoubtedly they will be a significant topic of conversation among the three panelists uh, after I leave. One question is, is what Massachusetts has, uh, has done, that likely to now be enacted in states across the country? And I think the answer is we don't know. Um, Massachusetts certainly is unusual. It has a lower percentage of people who are uninsured, and therefore the task and the cost of expanding coverage for those who don't have it is not as great 
as it is in a whole other number of other states, uh, and therefore Massachusetts could do something that would be more difficult to achieve in other states. Also, the state of Massachusetts had a very significant fund for uncompensated care, care of people who are uninsured who couldn't afford uh, the care that they received, and the state has transferred those funds to pay for some of the state's costs for some of the subsidies and other portions that the state is going to pay. Can other states afford to do it? Many cannot. So I'm not sure that Massachusetts is going to become an example, at least in terms of adopting lock, stock, and barrel, uh, what the state has adopted. I do think, however, that there are two lessons that will be learned from what Massachusetts has done. First, make sure you do it in a bipartisan fashion. Do some mixing and matching. Uh, and I think we're going to see that more frequently. I certainly pray that we do this uh, here in Washington in the not-too-distant future and that states do it as well. I also think that some of the elements of the plan may well be adopted uh, by some other states. The last issue that no doubt is going to get a fair amount of debate, uh, knowing the uh, fine folks who are going to be speaking after me, is, is the question of mandates. You know, does it make sense to have mandates? And I guess I want to just add a perspective to it. Yes, there is a, a vigorous debate about things like employer mandates or pay and play. Yes, there's undoubtedly going to be a vigorous debate about individual mandates. And those, those debates actually occur on the left and the right. But it's very important to understand that we're talking now about explicit mandates, whereas today we have inexplicit mandates. And when I talk about inexplicit mandates, I mean that all of us who purchase health coverage are mandated to pay for the costs of people who are uninsured and can't afford it. When we go to the hospital and we pay the bill, you may not see a surcharge added to the bill to pay for the costs of the uninsured, but you can bet your bottom dollar that it exists. When your employer pays for health coverage for you, the employer and whatever portion you're paying includes an amount to cover the costs of those who don't pay for it. We at Families USA issued a study last year that looked at what portion of employer-provided health coverage for families just pays for the costs, uncompensated costs of the uninsured. And as a national average, it's $922. So uh, I would, uh, uh, $922 a year. Um, and so I would urge that as you think about the question of mandates, Understand that the most vigorous debates are an explicit mandate, but we have inexplicit mandates. And I think that having explicit mandates, doing things up front in a thoughtful way, makes more sense than doing it under the table. So with that, let me thank you for inviting me, and I wish you well in this uh, discussion. Well, now for something completely different. <laughs> Actually, you know, it is said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I want to start by acknowledging the very good intentions of Governor Romney and the legislature in Massachusetts, because they wrestled with some very difficult issues. They did have to deal 
with the problem of uncompensated care and the free rider problem that you just heard described, although I, I will say it is much smaller than is commonly believed. Only somewhere between 3 and 5% of all health care spending is on for uncompensated care. And in Massachusetts, they were actually at the low end of that, only at about 3% of spending in Massachusetts was for uncompensated care. But it's still, it is, it's a real issue that needed to be dealt with. There is a problem of affordability and access and the number of people without insurance. The small group market and the individual insurance market in Massachusetts were fragmented and overly regulated, and it was driving up costs, particularly in the individual market. These were all real problems that the state tried to deal with. Unfortunately, comes the road to hell part because I believe that in almost every case, the state has gotten it wrong. Let's start right at the very beginning with this whole question of the individual mandate. The individual mandate is an unprecedented, if you will, level of interference with individual decision making in the healthcare marketplace. Never has any state or the federal government, never has any government that I'm aware of at any level, mandated that simply because you live in a particular place, a particular state, you must therefore buy a particular government-prescribed product. But beyond simply the fact that this, I think, is an enormous infringement on individual liberty, this sets in place a series of dominoes that I think will cascade down and lead to ever more government control over the health care system. Because once you set up a situation in which individual consumers cannot discipline the marketplace by refusing to buy a product, when you create a captive audience or a captive buying populace, if you will, what you are going to see is every special interest group, every provider group, every disease constituency demanding that they be included in that product that now has to be bought. And that that is going to then drive up the cost of the product. As you add more and more of these mandates, you will see more and more costs going to the product, which goes up. What then happens to the consumer? Either they're going to have to increase the ever-increasing subsidies to keep up with the rising cost, or else they're going to end up paying more and more out of their own pocket. They will then turn to some other entity in order to force down costs. They'll have to look to the state government or the federal government. Those governments will then add premium caps or some other way to hold down the cost of insurance. The insurance companies, unable to take care of the costs and unable to change their benefit package to sort of manage, they can't manage risk, they can't manage product design, they will then have to cut back on reimbursements which leads us down the whole road to rationing that you see in national health care. Now, I recognize one should always be a little bit careful when making slippery slope arguments. Any, any slope can appear slippery if you look at it. Yet, this particular slope has already started to slip, or at least we've already started to slip down this slope. When Governor Romney originally introduced this idea, he called for the mandate to apply to a, a bare bone. <coughs> package, of, uh, sort of a minimum benefit package with high deductibles. It was going to cover just sort of catastrophic care. And what happened as it made it through the, through the way through the legislative process? Every one of the 40 mandates that Massachusetts requires was put back into the bill, including requirements for hair transplants, 
that now have to be offered as part of this legislation. So what you've already seen is the special interest who spent $7.5 million lobbying the state legislature for the design of this package are already back in driving up the cost of this proposal. So it was originally supposed to cost about $250 a month. They now estimate it's going to cost at least $350 a month, and I expect it to go up much more from there. And beginning in 2008, they're allowed to add additional mandates, and you can already see the vultures starting to circle to add additional mandates to the bill. Secondly, you have the subsidies. Now, we're not uh, talking about subsidizing just low-income people, uh, as Ron Pollack just said. These subsidies extend from $30,480 for a single individual who will receive subsidies as high as $130,389 for a family uh, with seven children. But a typical married couple with two children qualifies for a subsidy if their income is $58,500. Given that the uh, median income in the United States is just over $44,000, we're extending subsidies not just to low-income people, but well up into the middle class. This will have two very deleterious effects. Number one is that we can expect businesses to begin to dump their employers, employees off of the employee-provided health plans into the publicly subsidized health plans. We can begin to see this transfer of responsibility from business to the taxpayers. We already see this with Medicaid and with S-CHIP. We already see these programs beginning to absorb people that were previously covered under employer plans now being shifted to taxpayers, which drives up the cost of the program. And second, by extending these subsidies so far into the middle class, you greatly increase the number of people who are dependent on government, and you begin to build a constituency to vote for ever more benefits. This is basically expanding government higher and higher up the income range into the middle class. And I think that that's not a direction that we want to go in. And finally is this whole question of the Massachusetts connector. This is an idea that's basically a form of managed competition. What it does is, is essentially combine the group, small group and individual markets and they can purchase from the private sector, but through a government-created entity that will have the power to design what the benefits are that are offered. Now, there's a lot of debate over exactly how much power this entity has. The legislative language is sort of vague. It doesn't actually say that they can only offer certain plans or that they have the power to, to not offer other plans, but it says they have the power to create a, a connector seal of approval to rate certain plans as having fair, uh, high quality and good value, which, interestingly, is the same language that's always used to justify mandated benefits. So what you've got is this connector, which no one knows whether or not they can limit the plans being offered to just those that receive their seal of approval. The state legislature in its legislative report says they can. Uh, an analysis by the law firm of Ropes and Gray uh, of the plan says they can. The Massachusetts Hospital Association says they can. The Heritage Foundation says they can't. I, I, I don't know, but we'll, we'll set that aside. And if they can, what you're going to have is the government prescribing a limited number of plans with a very defined benefit package limiting consumer choice. What you have essentially is back to these sort of pools that were part of the Clinton health care plan. 
And these monopsony providers are essentially the key of managed competition. The idea that we will allow health care to remain in private hands, but in an artificial environment. We will forbid uh, providers from competing on the basis of product design or on the basis of managing risk, and we will simply allow them to exist with it sort of like publicly regulated utilities. And finally, of course, we have an increase in the imposition in, in on businesses through the mandate uh, on businesses, which I'll agree is modest, and a host, 10 new commissions, agencies, institutions, and trust funds that are created by this, uh, by this legislation, vastly expanding the health care bureaucracy. Essentially, health care reform in this country needs to move in the direction of greater consumer control, and more freedom. The Massachusetts plan moves in exactly the opposite direction. It moves in favor of greater government control, less consumer choice, more subsidies, more regulation. Given that it's from Massachusetts, maybe it's the best we could hope for. It has been endorsed by Ted Kennedy and John Kerry and Hillary Clinton, though it might be a blue, good blue state health care reform. But it is certainly not a model for the nation. It is certainly not something that other states should be copying. It goes in the wrong direction down that road paved with good intentions. Thank you all very much. Well, first of all, I'd like to applaud Cato for sponsoring what is about to be a very broad-ranging discussion and divergence of views. Uh, but really, that was very, very nicely done, Mike. I will point out that both you and I could benefit from a hair transplant, so I'm not going to say <laughs> with certainty it's such a bad idea. But the, but the first point I really want to make is that, you know, it's kind of interesting how this whole discussion is coming out of the states and not here. And I think there's sort of two reasons for that, and some of those are good. One is the sense of urgency that people feel out there outside the Beltway is truly rising. I mean, I would submit, based on the talking I do around the country and, and what businessmen tell me and, and politicians tell me out there, the objective barometers of the level of stress in our health care system are about the same place they were in 91, 92, except premiums are three times higher. And that means as a fraction of income they're way higher. The fundamental dynamic that is driving that sense of urgency and the reason the subsidy scales go up as high as they do, and I agree with Mike, I'm surprised how high they go. But when you look at the numbers, it's kind of hard, it's kind of easy to see how they got there. In 1987, a family health insurance policy cost about 7.7%, roughly 8% of the median family income. So the income in the exact middle of our distribution, half above, half below, took about 8%. I'm counting both employer and employee share since employee share, employer share comes out of wages. Today, the ratio of family policy to median family income is 18% and rising. Now that means half our population either does or would have to pay more than 18% for a typical policy in the group market. I submit to you what's going on 
is an increasing fraction of our workforce is finding health insurance unaffordable. That's been the problem for small business for as long as I've known Denny and longer (laughs) before our careers began. It's only getting worse. And it's now basically coming to a middle-class, large-firm job near you. That is to say, we can't afford this stuff as we're doing it anymore. And that's why, and I'm about to name the states, Utah, Arkansas, West Virginia, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Montana, Tennessee. You've already heard about Maine, Illinois, Vermont. All these states are looking at ways to expand coverage, typically in a small group area where it's the most uh, salient problem, with limited benefit packages. I'll just give you two examples. In Arkansas, they just had OHIFA waiver approved, which is going to bring about a three-share payment frame between employer, employee, and the state, and the feds. And the benefit package is this, six outpatient visits, seven inpatient days a year. Now, the liberals among you may shrink in horror at seven inpatient days a year, but that would take care of 95% of the employed population and their family members in our country. New Mexico has a little different approach. Instead of putting specific limits on services, they put a $100,000 limit on the the total amount the benefit package will pay in a given year, a $100,000 annual limit. Again, people shrink in horror when you think about that, but again, it covers 90-95% of the population we're talking about. My point is, folks are looking hard at ways to make this affordable including both subsidies and benefit package restrictions. And that's where I think maybe the road to hell, but, but I would say good intentions are indeed coming together across our country. Now let me talk to Massachusetts specifically. The best thing about Massachusetts, in fact the top three best things about Massachusetts, are that it's a bipartisan agreement. It's a bipartisan agreement it's a bipartisan agreement. You've got a Republican governor expressly declared to be running for president, shaking hands with a legislature that I think we would agree is among the bluest of the blue in the, in the country as we know it. So the fact that you had a Republican presidential candidate governor willing to use the word all and a Democratic liberal legislature willing to accept the word limits. Sports fans, this is news. This is progress. This is indeed advancing the ball down. And that's why I think, indeed, it can be a model for all of us. Now, specifically, I would say the other features that are worthy of uh, paying attention here is the combination of individual responsibility, that is to say the requirement firmly placed on the individual to acquire insurance in one form or another, and the shared responsibility of the community to make it possible for individuals to afford it. That's why you have the subsidies. That's also why you have the connector. That is to say, a mechanism through which it becomes both efficient and fair to purchase health insurance for those groups that are most disadvantaged today, and they are small businesses under 50 and individuals on their own. Now, it is true that Massachusetts left in there the mandates, except they did allow, if I recall precisely, Limited benefit packages to be offered to those between 18 and 26, I think. As long as they don't get a subsidy. It's not clear how many benefit mandates will be taken out of that. That's sort of left to the details, you know, where both God and the devil live, and those details where the, where the board will do its business. But nevertheless, at least it's a bone in that direction. But I'll also say just a couple things about mandates, since Mike was so eloquent on attacking them. 
I will say it's kind of interesting how here's a state, one of the reasons Massachusetts is so unique is because they only had 10 11% uninsured, whereas the nation as a whole is about 16. If their mandates were so onerous, how is that possible? The second thing is the state of Texas, you may know, which is not a left-wing bastion you may have heard, did a study of their insurance mandates a few years ago, which include, by the way, inpatient treatment of alcohol and substance abuse, among the more expensive benefit mandates on the planet. And the state of Texas Department of Insurance concluded their mandates cost them about three percentage points in premium. Now, that's non-trivial. When you get up to $10,000, it's a lot of money. But 3% is hardly what I would call the driving force behind the high cost of health care. Health care costs a lot of money in this country for two reasons. We pay higher prices for every service than other countries around the world by quite a margin. And number two, it costs a lot of money because our technology has become increasingly effective. We are way better at fixing hips and hearts, even broken hearts, than we were 25, 30 years ago. But you know what? It costs money to get better at that. And that higher technology use is fundamentally what we're willing to pay for on average. But I submit to you, we have to get way smarter at buying it. And that's where the future lies. The question is, and I would say it's, a, it's an empirical question and a philosophical question, whether more consumer power and consumer freedom is the best way to tame this uh, excess purchase beast, or whether you can use market rules and some collective mechanisms. And I submit to you, Mike and I will argue about that forever, and we, hope we look forward to that as we go forward. Let me say a couple more things about Massachusetts in particular. To me, the employer mandate question is really kind of almost embarrassing, the way they came down to it. I'm sure you saw the actual fact where the legislature set up this kabuki dance where they would put the employer mandate in for those who don't offer that pay $2.95 a year per worker. They knew Romney would veto it. And they put the whole legislative vehicle in an appropriations bill so that he would have line item veto power to do that. That was their way of giving him the right to run for the Republican nomination. And then they turned around and overrode the veto in about an hour and a half, if I recall correctly. So the point is, they put it back because they needed to, politically, to stand with their labor union brethren. And that is to say, they had to say, we impose some kind of a requirement on employers. Now, I think it's a serious question, how you share responsibility in a society. And I think you can argue there is a role for employers. In fact, I would argue there will be a role for employers in those circumstances, Mike might like this, where it's more efficient for employers to do it with their workers. There are lots of big firms for whom that's true. There are pooling mechanisms you might find that may be true for groups of employers. It might be more efficient any other way we could do it. But I submit it's problematic to impose employer requirements on low-wage firms. Why? Because you're just going to lower wages more. That's a real smart thing to do. Or going to cost jobs. Those are your choices. So what they did in Massachusetts was a cosmetic, kind of symbolic thing as a way of saying, okay, we're going to have an employer requirement, but we're not really going to make it onerous. I don't think it really changes the incentives for those who offer now, because those who offer now offer because of labor market competition reasons, and they do it because their workers can afford to have their wages reduced enough to pay for it, and they they do it now without a mandate. Why would they stop tomorrow? I don't see that big, great cataclysmic slide toward... uh, the long run there. But I would also say 30 years, 50 years from now, it may be that we move away from the employer system, and it may be we do it quicker than that, depending on what happens to international competition. 
But in any event, we're going to do it through a shared responsibility concept. That is to say, we're either going to decide to help each other cover health insurance or we're not. I submit to you, we will. And that's really why this thing can be a model for all of us. You know, I'm in the think tank business, so that means right now we're in that era where people who are running for president are reaching out to various uh, folks beyond their usual little circle to get creative ideas. This is the fun time of the presidential sweepstakes. I've been approached by four candidates just to come in and talk. Trust me, I'm not going to be an advisor. I'm way too old for that. But two Ds, two Rs. What's interesting is the similarity of the questions the Rs have asked, and this is all before Massachusetts. First question was, you know, my aide has heard you talk about the moral case for health care. What is that? And I go through that, and I can talk about that, and it's, it's Bible-based, and we can do that if you have, want to in the Q&A, but I'll just say they care because they're devout, and they really want to know what that's about, and that turns out to matter in, in a lot of cases. But the second question for today's topic is actually more interesting. How can I make universal coverage consistent with Republican principles? turns out the answer is quite simple. It's Massachusetts. Individual mandate, individual responsibility. But we just went through the moral case. You've got to have a community agreed to make it possible for each individual to truly help themselves. You've got to have subsidies and some kind of mechanism to buy it efficiently. I submit to you the fact they're asking me the question is not a sign of my brilliance. Trust me. Those of you who know me well know better than that. It is a sign, though, of their polling and their focus groups, and their money guys saying, you know what, if you want to seriously run in 2008, you've got to be prepared to address this question. You've got to be prepared to address the sense of urgency the American people feel for being unable to afford health care as we know it. And we can do it with Republican principles. We can do it with Democratic principles. We can do it. Thank you very much. Well, I'm in an unfortunate position to talk about health care because I'm an economist, and economists always think about things differently. Uh, for example, when, I, when you hear about a $295 requirement per worker for businesses, I immediately think of that as being an incident on labor. And so labor should oppose it, and business shouldn't care. But instead, we had labor supporting it and business opposing it. So uh, obviously, I don't understand the politics. OK, the, 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 and you'll see that in general. Uh, Trust me, if you read my book, I'll, I'll do a commercial for it. Crisis of Abundance, an essential resource for anyone interested in health care policy. And with birthdays and gradu graduations coming up, it makes a great gift. <laughs> okay, the, um, the Massachusetts health care plan is very symbolic. Uh, we've heard some of the symbols. To some people, it symbolizes the promise of universal health coverage. To some people, it symbolizes the threat of government intrusion in personal decision-making. To some people, it symbolizes a bipartisan spirit of compromise and problem-solving. But the substance of the plan falls far short of the symbolism. And the substance of the plan, as you've heard, is actually somewhat unsettled. I describe it as like one of those movies from the 1950s where the director shows you the man and the woman in a romantic setting, but their clothes stay on, they barely touch each other, and the screen fades to black, and everything is left to your imagination. Well, similarly, Massachusetts has uh, outlined, the legislature has outlined a plan, but then they did a fade-out, and how it's actually going to work has been left to our imagination. So I want to say 
three things about it, bearing in mind that it's been left to our imagination. First, it does not address any of the three major problems in healthcare policy today. Second, the one problem that it may address is a trivial problem that was caused by regulation in the first place. And finally, we've heard about states needing to experiment in healthcare policy. And I'll explain why I would have rather seen Massachusetts experiment with a single-payer system. Okay, first of all, uh, the three problems that the Massachusetts health care plan does not address. The first two are what I call the elephants in the room, because they're very big and no one wants to talk about them. The first elephant in the room is the unfunded liability of Medicare, which is the biggest problem in health care today. Those of you familiar with the Medicare trustees' reports or the Congressional Budget Office analyses know that in the decades ahead, there looms trillions and trillions of dollars in deficits in Medicare. Now, would you expect the Massachusetts plan to do anything about that? No. But you should remember, no matter how you walk out of this room, whether you walk out pessimistic about the Massachusetts plan, or even if you walk out euphoric about the plan, that elephant of the Medicare unfunded liability is still in the room. The second elephant in the room is what I call the cost-effectiveness gap in American health care. A symptom about, of that gap that you hear a lot about is that in international comparisons, the United States clearly spends way more of our national output on health care than other countries, and yet our longevity statistics are no better. Now, I'm not, I think international statistics are not the most reliable indicators, but there's plenty of other evidence, and I've cited in this book, that suggests that there is a cost-effectiveness gap in American health care. And what that amounts to is that the American people, we spend an extravagant amount on medical procedures that have very high costs and very low benefits. And in my book, Crisis of Abundance Makes a Great Gift, I call that premium medicine. Premium medicine, medical procedures with very high costs and low benefits. And that is the creates the cost-effectiveness gap in American health care. The Massachusetts plan does not address that. The third issue that it does not address, even though we've heard some suggestions that it might address it, is the issue of affordable health care for all, or affordable health insurance for all. And the reason it does not address that is that it does not address the cost-effectiveness gap. Because with the cost-effectiveness gap, the problem of affordable health insurance for all is a problem of arithmetic. The average American spends over $5,000 a year on health care, on health care services. Now, that's over $5,000 a year for an individual. So those of you who think in family terms, think back to individual terms. Think in terms of $5,000 a year. And think of the individual who wants an affordable health insurance policy, again, a single individual, who probably defines that as a deductible of not more than $2,000, a year and a premium of not more than $2,000 a year. And you can immediately see what the problem is. If the individual pays $5,000 a year for health care services, expects only a $2,000 deductible and only a $2,000 premium, the insurance company has to lose money. Well, insurance companies don't lose money in this country. Instead, we play a game that I call hide the premium. For example, in employer-provided health insurance, you've heard that the point made that those, those health care subsidies from the employers come out of wages. 
And we can see that clearly in the trends on wages versus total compensation. And you can see in the data in the last 25 years that the American workers have been giving up wages in exchange for health care benefits provided by their employers. And that's how we've been playing hide the premium. Now, remember in Massachusetts, uh, it's been left to our imagination. And so when the uh, plan was enacted, I wrote an op-ed, which is in the handouts, in which I suggested that the in effect, that the Massachusetts plan was going to wind up as a game of hide the premium, in which the Massachusetts taxpayer was going to end up the loser. Because if you take, again, the, those, you know, somebody's got to lose money with the health insurance plans being proposed, and presumably that's going to come back to the Massachusetts taxpayer. Subsequently, Governor Romney wrote an op-ed in which he said that the taxpayer really isn't at risk because, lo and behold, this uninsured population in Massachusetts is not only unusually small, it has the remarkable characteristic that it's predominantly young, healthy, and not in need of much health care. So the bottom line is what the Massachusetts health care plan is, has, the problem it is addressing is the problem of providing affordable health insurance policies for the people who need health care least. Now that's not very impressive. Moreover, you have to ask, why couldn't the private sector have solved that problem to begin with? You know, of all the segments of the population for the health insurance industry not to be able to serve, why couldn't they serve the young, the healthy, and the people who need health care least? And the answer to that is regulation. If you were to deregulate health insurance tomorrow, then by next week there would be policies on the health insurance policies on the street that the people who need health care least could afford. Instead, Massachusetts created this connector which is a government-sponsored enterprise which may, and again, this has all been left to our imagination, which may have the ability to exempt itself from enough regulations to provide affordable health insurance for the people who need health care least. So to recap so far, the, the plan does not address the unfunded liability of Medicare, of course. It does not address the health care cost-effectiveness gap which is probably the most serious problem in American healthcare today. And because it doesn't address the cost-effectiveness gap, the use of premium medicine, of uh, medical procedures with high costs and low benefits, it does not address the problem of affordable health insurance for all. At best, depending on how it works out, it will solve the problem of affordable health insurance for people who need health care least. So what? Uh, shouldn't we be happy that there's a bipartisan spirit of compromise involved in putting together this program? And actually, I do like the idea of state-level experiments, but I would like to see interesting experiments. I would like to see some states experiment with radical deregulation and more consumer-oriented health care. And I would like to see some states experiment with a single-payer system, because I believe that in the context of premium medicine, the Americans making extravagant use of procedures that have high costs and low benefits, that in that context, a single-payer health care system would be a disaster. And I would much rather see that disaster unfold in one or two states before we try it out at a national level. Thank you.